Well, ladies and gentlemen, a uh, very warm welcome to what I think is the makings of uh, a really fascinating uh, excursion into what is rather relatively recent history uh, in the company, of course, of Dominic Sandbrook. Um, Dominic is, uh, is widely acknowledged um, as uh, one of Britain's most uh, brilliant uh, historians and readable historians. Uh, his first book was on the spectacularly unsuccessful U.S. presidential candidate uh, Eugene McCarthy, he really burst onto the scene uh, with his account of Britain under Harold Macmillan, uh, You've Never Had It So Good, uh, soon followed, still at an improbably early age, uh, by White Heat, his account of Britain under Harold Wilson. Now, I'm sure many of you will have uh, read uh, uh, some of these, or both these, uh, impeccably researched and marvellously readable books. Uh, and some reviewers have suggested that the book we are discussing tonight, State of Emergency, The Way We Were, Britain 1970 to 1974, uh, to be his, his best yet. And uh, I believe, and um, Dominic confirms, there's one more book to come uh, on Britain up to the election of Margaret Thatcher in 1979. Now, Dominic was educated at Oxford, St Andrews and Cambridge, uh, which is pretty good. It could have could have been better. Could have been better, but let that pass. Somehow, uh, he's managed on this incredibly short timescale to produce these monumental uh, works of, uh, uh, of, uh, of history, whilst also being a prolific writer, appearing regularly, as I'm sure you're aware, in the Sunday Te Times, the Telegraph, Evening Standard, to name but a few. Now, as I suggested, the reviews of State of Emergency have been uh, unstinting, pretty unstinting in their praise. Uh, the only exception being one rather, uh, rather snotty and snooty one, I thought, from, from far left field in, in the usually admirable um, Times Literary Supplement of all places. Uh, the reviewer uh, took the book to task for its uh, apparent innocence of its own middle-class assumptions, uh, whatever that means. Uh, sounds rather flattering to, to me. Um, <laughs> Now, I found State of Emergency to be utterly uh, compelling, partly because the subject matter is, is, is so compelling in its awfulness. Um, glam rock, anyone remember? Wizard or the Roubettes? Uh, wildcat strikes, skinhead violence, IRA bombings, property boom and bust, Bloody Sunday, the oil crisis, the angry brigade, brutalist architecture, home brewing kits, stripy tank tops, mullet haircuts, Arthur Scargill's first cameo appearances, the very sinister John Tyndall and the National Front. But of course, the picture was more uh, mixed than, uh, than, uh, than that. One could have a wide range of views on the merits of, of spider plants and hanging baskets, or wicker peacock chairs, or Brian Clough, or sitcoms like The Likely Lads, uh, Till Death Us Do Part, or, or even Mary Whitehouse, for that matter. And on the credit side, let's not forget that for all the slades and sweet and mud and so on, there was David Bowie, there was Roxy Music, Dr. Feelgood, Led Zeppelin, and Fairport Convention. And for all the dreadful sitcoms like On the Buses and Please Sir, and film series like the Confessions series, Confessions of a Window Cleaner, Driving Instructor, I'm sure you remember some of those. Go on, own up if you do. Uh, the BBC was also offering Keith Michel in Henry VIII, Glenda Jackson in, in Elizabeth, um, Derek Jacobi in I, Claudius. And of course, to my mind, the greatest flowering of British wit since William Shakespeare, Monty Python. Unaccountably omitted from Dominic's book, <laughs> with the exception of one sketch on which is being rude about people who take package holidays. And this is my only real beef with the book. Now, the index of the book, and I promise I will end it a bit, but I'm just trying to convey my enthusiasm for it. Um, the index of the book is a treasure trove of come-on-ish signposts. 
Under Mary Whitehouse, we find Alarmed by Obscene Vegetable Matter, page 461. <laughs> Under Reginald Maudling, we find Eats Baked Potato and Caviar, page 512. Under Edward Heath, Massacres French Language, page 150. And Massacres Mozart, page 42. <laughs> Under Lord Longford, Strangled in Copenhagen Sex Club, page 453. And under Doctor Who Supports European Entry, <laughs> page, page 163. Uh, looming over this Victorian freak show, uh, of course, are the politicians and the trade union leaders. Uh, above all, the lonely and stubborn and socially inept figure um, of Edward Heath, um, the Prime Minister, whose run-ins with the miners and the three-day week are sure to outlive his musical and yachting excursions, I think, in the popular imagination. My own mem memory of the power cuts is, is a fond one. Uh, I would uh, check the evening standard each day to see which side of Kensington High Street would be plunged into darkness at what time, and I, I decided that I would look just the part reading the Roman classics by candlelight, starting, of course, with Suetonius's Twelve Caesars, which was a particularly pacey read for a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> but for me, the most emblematic figure um, who appears, of course, in Dominic's book, uh, the most emblematic figure of the first half of the 70s was the appalling Howard Kirk, Malcolm Bradbury's history man, a monstrous university lecturer, uh, a bully, sexual predator, ruthless opportunist, wearing his cod Marxism, his tight jeans, and his political correctness as comfortably as his Afghan coat. So is this what awaited me at university, uh, I wondered. Uh, well, fortunately, LSE was still peopled, and still is, I should add, by gentlemen and lady academics of the old school. Charming, courteous individuals, slightly eccentric, unsullied by fashionable theories of postmodernism, postcolonialism, and cultural studies. And even by the end of the 1970s, the virtues of old England were still there to be found, or so I, so I thought. So it wasn't all bad. But enough of me. You're here to hear about Dominic's really cracking book. Uh, it's on sale outside, and I'm pleased to say Dominic will be very happy to sign copies afterwards for those of you uh, who wish it. So Dominic, the floor is, is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Maurice, uh, for that very generous introduction, for effectively giving my talk for me. Um, uh, this is the first time I've been uh, at CLSE for about 14 years. The last time I was True. here, I was rehearsing a, um, a play, which we took to the Edinburgh Festival, which um, I know at least one, if not maybe two people in the audience have actually seen. And uh, they will no doubt confirm that it was a very bad play. I, the review is still etched on my memory teenage bishops and trainers do not exactly convey the majesty of the medieval church, said the Scotsman. So if the talk is, um, as the uh, TLS reviewer might say, uh, too innocent in its middle class assumptions, there is one consolation for you. You haven't seen me act. <laughs> but for the next half hour, I want to take you back to a period that in many ways seems like ancient history. An age when almost every day saw bombs going off in Northern Ireland, when half of the working population belonged to a trade union, when first division footballers earned less than 200 pounds a week, when Angel Delight was a gourmet dessert, when Phil Collins had long hair, and when you could buy wallpaper in any color you wanted, as long as it was brown. Like Sam Tyler, the time-traveling detective in the TV show Life on Mars, you're about to suffer what some would consider a fate worse than death. You're going back to the early 70s. The years of Edward Heath and Harold Wilson, George Best and Germaine Greer. A bygone age, when Leeds United ruled the First Division, the Labour Party still proudly flew the red flag of socialism, and James Bond wore a cravat. 
Imagine that when you woke up this morning, you found yourself catapulted back in time to one of the biggest public events in modern British history. The date is the 14th of November, 1973. And what you can hear in the background is Noel Edmonds on the Radio 1 Breakfast Show introducing the current number one, David Cassidy's Daydreamer. It's a big day, a public holiday. And even as you're shaking yourself awake, tens of thousands of onlookers are pouring onto the streets between Buckingham Palace and Westminster Abbey, where hundreds of little flags are fluttering in the breeze. The Boy Scouts in their green uniforms are getting ready to hand out their souvenir programs. The hawkers are moving in with their hot dogs and their bottles of lemonade, their Union Jacks and their Mark and Anne souvenir t-shirts. And no doubt two people in particular are feeling a bit nervous because today on television, Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips are getting married and no fewer than 28 million people live on television are gonna watch them do it. If you went down to the streets of London to watch the crowds that morning, you'd find plenty to amuse you. You'd see lots of Parker anoraks and flowing maxi dresses, long sideburns and shaggy beards, enough flares to last you a lifetime, and maybe even the odd outbreak of dungarees. Although, of course, there'd be fewer of all those things than you might expect, because many people in the early 1970s still dressed relatively conservatively, and only a handful wrote what we might rather generously call the cutting edge of fashion. But if you looked at the headlines, you'd be in for a shock. The front page of the Daily Mirror, which was then Europe's best-selling newspaper, carries a photo of the happy couple with what it calls the smiles of two young people in love to cheer up Britain today. But the banner headline tells a rather more depressing story. Cold comfort, it says. It's cold comfort Britain today as the government faces the worst crisis economic, financial, and political since it came to power in 1970. The Daily Express, then the biggest middle market newspaper in the country, has the same photo of Anne and Mark and a similarly bleak headline, Here Comes the Freeze. Enjoy all the sparkle of the royal wedding today, its lead story begins, because afterwards the lights will dim, petrol rationing will loom, coal will be scarce, and the central heating is liable to go off. On top of all that, money will be tighter, with overdrafts more expensive. And just in case you had any shreds of optimism left, here's the Times. Lights go out as emergency powers bite, says the main headline. Urgent action to meet energy crisis. Triple threat to the nation. Inside, the paper's editorial page makes no mention of the royal wedding at all. Instead, it warns that Britain faces what it calls a fight to the death between the government and the miners. The stark title says it all, A State of Emergency. Now this, of course, is the 70s that we often remember, a bleak, miserable decade, blighted by strikes and shortages, a decade when you could buy a new colour television, but power cuts would stop you from watching it, when the evening news regularly carried pictures of burly men in donkey jackets warming their hands around braziers, when the politicians lost their grip and the economy plunged into oblivion. And although this picture is sometimes exaggerated, not least by Thatcherites who want to paint the 70s as the dark night before the dawn of the 80s, there's more than a grain of truth in it. Just over a month before Anne and Mark's fairy tale wedding, the Arab-dominated OPEC cartel had imposed a devastating 70% increase in the cost of oil, the famous 1973 oil shock, which almost overnight sent the Western economy into a nightmarish combination of recession and inflation, stagflation. <coughs> That was the event 
that gave Edward Heath's opponents in the National Union of Mine Workers their chance, quite literally, to strike. Just two days before the royal wedding, Britain's 260,000 miners had begun an overtime ban in pursuit of higher pay, in clear defiance of the nationwide wage limits that Heath had imposed only weeks before. And that very evening, as millions of people were still gathered around their TV sets watching the wedding coverage, the Electricity Board warned that in the next few days, most of the country was likely to suffer severe power cuts, plunging homes and offices, schools and hospitals into total darkness. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. If you did go back in time to the 14th of November 1973, and if you stuck around for a few weeks, you'd find yourself in the middle of what remains, I think, the biggest political and economic crisis since the Second World War. In some ways, the parallels with our own position are irresistibly striking. In the opening years of the decade, Ted Heath's Chancellor, Anthony Barber, a man who was once very aptly described as looking like somebody who always played a vicar in the local amateur dramatic society, Barber had drastically inflated the economy, hoping that the resulting dash for growth would abolish the depressing cycle of boom and bust. Thanks to the oil shock, however, Barber's boom had well and truly burst, leaving the economy on the brink of recession, the stock market in meltdown, and the property market in ruins. The government cut spending by £1.2 billion, roughly 4%, but many experts thought worse, much worse, was to come. In late December 1973, the Permanent Secretary to the Treasury, Sir Douglas Allen, told colleagues that he expected Britain to move into, quote, a siege economy with rationing on the wartime model. At almost exactly the same time, Labour's Shadow Chancellor, Dennis Healy, told his colleagues that Britain faced, quote, an economic holocaust. Meanwhile, the historian A.J.P. Taylor was sending a series of increasingly gloomy letters to his Hungarian wife, Eva. He was terrified, he said, by the approaching hurricane, predicting shortages of oil and coal, the absence of heat and light, and millions thrown out of work. I've been expecting the collapse of capitalism all my life, he remarked with gallows humour, but now that it comes, I'm rather annoyed. <laughs> Meanwhile, the energy crisis continued. Here in London, schools and sent children home because of heating problems. In Lincolnshire, the police gave up their cars and went back on the beat to save petrol costs. In Sussex, 10,000 streetlights were turned off to save power. The government even paid for full-page ads in the newspapers begging people to stop what they called weekend motoring, to organise carpools and to keep below 50 miles an hour at all times. But it was no good. The coal stocks continued to run out, the miners refused to go back to work, and the railwaymen decided that this would be a good moment for them to walk out, too. The government banned floodlighting. It told the BBC and ITV they had to stop broadcasting at 10.30 every night. It ordered offices to keep their temperatures below 60 degree, 63 degrees Fahrenheit. But it wasn't enough. And just before Christmas, Ted Heath went on television and told the nation that from New Year's Eve onwards, Britain would be on a three-day week. And if things weren't bad enough... That Christmas, Heath had to endure the ultimate humiliation, an offer of help from Edie Armin, who announced that he had set up a Save Britain fund. <laughs> I have decided to contribute 10,000 Ugandan shillings from my own savings, said Armin, and I am convinced that many Ugandans will donate generously to rescue their innocent friends. Ironically, the three-day week was much less damaging economically than we often remember. Many firms responded with great ingenuity, using battered old screwdrivers and spanners to keep working even when the power went off. <coughs> in Nottingham, 
Clerical staff at Rally Industries worked without heat or light so that all power could be switched to their production line. In Sheffield, a snuff-making firm reverted to using a water wheel that had last seen action in 1737. On the King's Road, Chelsea, a furrier's shop displayed the sign, open six days a week by candle power, battery power and wheel power. All in all, production levels fell by just a tenth, which spoke volumes for the energy with which many firms approached the three-day week, but said rather less for their efficiency beforehand. And there were plenty of compensations. Audiences trebled for late-night radio shows hosted by John Peel and whispering Bob Harris, who liked to torment night owls with the sound of progressive rock. Fishing tackle shops reported booming sales. Golf courses were deluged with aspiring Tony Jacklins. And the introduction of er earlier kickoff times and Sunday games allowed the Football League to continue as normal, with Don Revy's Leeds United setting a record of 29 matches without defeat. Indeed, some people actively welcomed the prospect of the three-day week. Now at last, said one Daily Mail columnist, we've time to do all those lazy and free things we always wanted to do. With so much free time and no electricity, she said, people should take the opportunity to enjoy rereading an old book or digging the garden. And in a very un-Daily Mail-like fashion, she had a saucier suggestion too. The three-day week, she said, was, quote, a chance for husbands and wives to be more spontaneous, to experiment more in their sex lives while the kids are doing a five-day week at school. <laughs> now, I have to confess that, like you, I was greatly amused when I found that story. But the smile very quickly disappeared from my face when I realized that those words were written almost exactly nine months before I was born. <laughs> there can surely be few authors who, in writing their books, have been forced to contemplate the serious possibility that they may literally owe their lives to a column in the Daily Mail. <laughs> but for most people, of course, the prospect of endless power cuts, crippling inflation, millions out of work and a fight to the death between the government and the unions was no laughing matter. And there's no doubt, I think, that the early 70s were a peculiarly troubled time in our recent history. In less than four years, the Heath government was compelled to call five states of emergency. And that's before you even consider the horrific slaughter in Northern Ireland, which by 1974 was already spilling over onto the British mainland. These years were ones of extraordinary cultural and social flux. But they also represented something of a reckoning for a country, a consensus, and an economy that for two decades had been living on borrowed time. The statistics speak for themselves. In 1950, Britain had commanded a share of about 25% of the world trade in manufactures. By 1970, it had less than 10%, just half that of West Germany. In the league table of GDP growth, meanwhile, Britain fell from 9th in 1961 to 13th, in 1966 and 15th in 1971 on its way to a miserable 18th in 1976. For the past 25 years or more, the United Kingdom has been in a state of chronic crisis, a British disease, wrote the former Labour politician Lord Shawcross in July 1970. The public need to face facts. This country is not, and for a long time has not been, competitive in world markets. Indeed, at a very basic level, the power cuts and strikes of the 1970s, the hysterical headlines and the predictions of disaster, were rooted in profound international challenges, from the collapse of the British Empire to the surging tide of globalization. Edward Heath struggled to cope with them, and indeed his attempted solutions often made matters worse. 
But no government, Conservative or Labour, could have escaped unscathed. By 1974, Britain stood on the brink of a profound transformation, caught between past and present, its political consensus fragmenting under the pressure of social change, its economy struggling to cope with overseas competitors, its culture torn between the comforts of nostalgia and the excitement of change, its leaders groping to understand a landscape transformed by consumerism and social mobility. An old world was dying, a new was struggling to be born. And yet, when I was writing my book, it struck me that a uniformly bleak, grim, depressing view of the 70s, even just of the winter of 1973 to 74, doesn't tell the whole story. Trawling idly on the internet one day, I came across the diary of a 12-year-old teenage girl from Essex. From time to time, she had taken note of the major events of the day. As the power and energy crisis is still on, she wrote on New Year's Day, it looks as if we'll soon be using candles and riding bikes everywhere. And yet, despite all the talk of national crisis, her diary actually tells a rather different story, one of camping expeditions, trips to sweet shops and Chinese takeaways, the purchase of records and bubble bath, the compilation of David Cassidy's scrapbooks. This was an age, after all, in which many ordinary people were better off than ever before. For Christmas that year, the Essex teenager had a bottle of talcum powder, two bottles of nail varnish, a nightdress, the board game Cluedo, a Leo Sayer record, a David Cassidy storybook, there's a lot of David Cassidy involved, and 20 pounds to buy clothes. Now, 20 or 30 years ago, a Christmas haul like that for an ordinary teenage girl would have been simply unimaginable. But of course, for her, and for millions like her, and despite all the grim headlines and the predictions of disaster, life simply went on. Of course, in many ways, all of this stuff, strikes and blackouts, Leo Sayer records, David Cassidy storybooks, feels like ancient history. Even if the trade unions campaign against the Cameron Coalition's spending cuts, I can safely predict that we won't see anything even vaguely like the three-day week, still less the winter of discontent that followed five years later. And indeed, there are plenty of other ways in which the early 1970s seem almost impossibly remote. For example, if you did take a trip in your TARDIS back to Ted Heath's Britain, I suspect that most of you would be horrified by the petty prejudices and inequalities that still govern the lives of most women. Until the end of 1971, for instance, women were banned from going into wimpy bars on their own after midnight on the grounds that the only women who would be out on their own at that hour must be prostitutes. Most women were paid only two-thirds of what men got for the same job. Most married women were still housewives. Rapists were often given suspended sentences. In one case in 1975, a judge released one rapist on appeal because he said, quote, the victim was not without sexual experience. Gay rights was still an ambition rather than a reality. In opinion polls, half of the public thought that gay people should not be allowed to become teachers or doctors. And about four out of ten people still thought that homosexuality should be illegal. Indeed, outright opposition to homosexuality remained a powerful element in British life. When the novelist Angus Wilson came out in the mid-1970s, he was bombarded with hate mail. Why don't you take a long rope, find a tall tree and hang yourself by the neck until you are dead, you depraved faggot, spelt wrongly, read one letter. Not least because Wilson was a key figure in the protests against British home stores in 1976, which had forced a trainee manager to resign after he was shown kissing his boyfriend in an ITV documentary. 
Prosecutions of gay men for indecency actually went up rather than down in the early 1970s, although convictions no longer had such a devastating impact on people's lives. And gay men still ran the risk of being attacked by self-described queer bashers, like the gang of teenagers who killed Michael de Grouchy, a solicitor's clerk, on Wimbledon Common in 1970, or the building workers who killed Peter Benyon, a 32-year-old librarian, in 1978. And even the most conservative among us, I suspect, would be shocked by the attitudes that most people who never thought of themselves as racist and often prided themselves on their tolerance showed towards their black and brown neighbours. This was a world in which 20 million people regularly tuned into the black and white menstrual show, a world in which Enoch Powell was voted Britain's most admired man three years in a row. When the writer Jeremy Seabrook went to Blackburn to, to canvass local opinion on immigration, he found a torrent of praise for the controversial sage of Wolverhampton. He started too late with all this black business. He should have started sooner, said one elderly woman. He speaks the mind of all the white, well, three quarters of the white people in this country, said another. It's a pity old Enoch ain't in charge, much as that quintessential 70s folk hero Alf Garnet in an episode of Till Death Us Do Part from January 1974 to the unashamed hilarity of the audience. He'd sort them out. He'd put the coons down the pits, he would. Perhaps it was no wonder then that the pioneering black comedian Charlie Williams, easily then the most famous black man in Britain, felt that he had to play the same game. He had been left in the oven too long, he would tell audiences. He was sweating so much he was leaking chocolate. Those are direct quotes. During the power cuts, he joked, I had no trouble at all. All I had to do was roll my eyes. And if people heckled him, he had what he thought was the perfect answer. If you don't shut up, he told them, I'll come and move next door to you. But of course, these were not the only ways in which the Britain of Ted Heath, Tony Blackburn and Brian Clough would seem positively backward to a modern visitor. During the last election, there were pages of commentary about the similarities between the hung parliament of May 2010 when the Liberals held the balance of power between the Conservatives and Labour and eventually decided to hold the Tories out and that of February 1974, when almost exactly the same thing happened, but the Liberal Tory talks broke down and Ted Heath had to move his piano out of number 10 so that Harold Wilson could return at the head of a minority government. And yet politically, 1974 and 2010 are worlds apart. In the early 1970s, the coal industry, the railways, telecommunications, gas, electricity, even the buses were publicly owned nationalised industries. When Heath came into office in 1970, the travel agents Thomas Cook and Lund Polly were both state-owned. So too, bizarrely, were all the pubs in Carlisle. <laughs> when the economy ran into trouble, Heath thought nothing <coughs> of introducing legislation to control not just what you paid for your loaf of bread or your pint of bitter, but how much your employer could pay you every week, backed up with a massive apparatus of pay boards and price commissions that now sounds like something from Stalinist Russia. And if the Tories seemed weirdly statist to modernise, then you wonder what young voters today would make of Harold Wilson's Labour Party, which went to the country in February 1974, pledging to make businesses sign compulsory planning agreements with government and to set up a national enterprise board, which would take over firms so that the government could, quote, plan the national economy in the national interest. Tony Benn, then at the height of his fame, even had a plan for the National Enterprise Board to take over Britain's top 25 manufacturers so that he could liberate the British economy from the grip of multinational capitalism. As his sceptical colleague Dennis Healy sarcastically put it, 
Yes, why don't we nationalise Marks and Spencers and make it as good as the co-op? <laughs> but for the time being, it was Ben who had the last laugh. For it was Labour, with a very Benite manifesto, who won that election. They won in part because they appealed to people like Doug Peach, a shop steward at the black country engineering firm of Rubery Owen, who supplied parts to the region's car manufacturers, and in the mid-1970s became a byword for strikes and stoppages. Doug Peach was the son and grandson of black country welders. He'd been invalided out of Dunkirk in 1940, and he worked as a welder himself before becoming a shop steward, for which he earned a less than princely £4,000 a year. He lived in a two-bedroom terraced house just outside Wolverhampton, close to the factory. His four sons all worked for Rubery Owen as well. His wife, Hilda, ran a textile store in a Wensfield market. A man of traditional tastes, he spent his evenings feeding his chickens and inspecting his cucumbers. Later, he'd eat a cold tea in front of their television, and then he'd perhaps go to the working men's club for cribbage, dominoes, and a pint of mild. He was no firebrand, no extremist, when far-left militants tried to win over the workers, he recalled, I crushed the bastards. But Doug Peach believed that Britain was two nations, not one, and he was determined to fight to the last for the interests of the workers. This battle will continue when I have finished, he insisted. There has got to be us and them. There has always got to be us and them. No doubt Doug would have agreed with the views of the Midlands Labour MP, who told the Times in 1976 that the Labour Party must, quote, always be a class party, for it is a class war we are fighting. Nowhere is this more clear than in the factories, where manual workers enter by one gate, eat in segregated canteens, and work longer hours in worse conditions than their betters. It was for them, he said, that he was fighting, and only if we win will we have a civilised society. That MP's name was Robert Kilroy Silk. And yet, as I was writing my book, it occurred to me that looking back from 2010 and concentrating on everything that seemed outdated or different or mundane or ludicrous was entirely the wrong way to approach the early 1970s. When Sam Tyler travels back to 1973 in Life on Mars, everything strikes him as painfully old-fashioned. Everything seems brown, smoky, barbaric. But nobody else thinks that way. And of course, what impressed people at the time was not how old everything was, but how new. Not how backward Britain was, but how much it was changing. A time traveler from 2010 at the wedding of Princess Anne might well be struck by how primitive everything seemed. But a time traveler from the last major royal occasion, the coronation of 1953, would be astonished by the sheer modernity of life in the early 70s, the futuristic fashions, the general air of prosperity and comfort, by the fact that so many people had cars of their own, by the central heating, the indoor toilets, the gleaming new kitchens and bathrooms, the telephones, the fridges, the washing machines that so many families now took for granted. If he wandered towards the West End, he would surely have rubbed his eyes in wonder at the high street fashion stores overflowing with new designs, at the, the bookshops groaning under their weight of stock, the Italian pizzerias, the Indian curry houses, the Chinese takeaways. And if he'd opened a newspaper, what would have struck him would have been the complacent assumptions of abundance, the classified offers of second-hand cars and old appliances, the endless promises of high street sales, the features on gardening, motoring, and DIY, 
the glossy adverts for cigars, liqueurs, foreign holidays. And the deeper point is that the people in those crowds that day were time travelers of a sort. Many of them had come from the coronation in 1953. It had just taken them 20 years to get there. And if you reflect how much life had changed for them and how much their country had changed during that journey, then I think you come to realize just how much the early 70s were less a last redoubt of a backward Britain than a crucible in which modern Britain was born. It was in 1973, after all, that Britain joined the European Union, or what became the European Union. It was in 1973 that what became the Green Party first advertised for members. Martin Amis published his first book, even that the BBC first broadcast Last of the Summer Wine. It was in the early 1970s that hundreds of thousands of people started going on package holidays to Malta and Mallorca. The vegetarian restaurants and whole food shops first became familiar sites on the British high street. That the campaign for real ale began the fight back against fizzy European lagers. That E.F. Shoemaker published the environmentalist manifesto, Small is Beautiful. The Friends of the Earth began campaigning against pollution. It was in the early 1970s that pornography invaded the corner shop newsagent and that page three became a fixture in the sun. It was in the early 1970s too that the Gay Liberation Front held its first demonstration. The first National Women's Conference heralded the rise of feminism and Germaine Greer published The Female Eunuch. Women are tired of being patronized and condescended to. We are bored by being considered as a curious and endangered species. And if our homes and our families remain central to us and our concerns, they are no longer our horizon. Not Germaine Greer's words, Margaret Thatcher's. In fact, even if you wish that women would get back in the kitchen, that gays would get back in the closet and immigrants would go back where they came from, even if you drive a gas-guzzling 4x4, if you loathe the European Union, and if you think that English football has gone downhill ever since they sacked Sir Alf Ramsey, you still live in a world the 70s made. You probably own a deep freezer, sales of which grew by 10 times between 1970 and 1978. You may even have visited a branch of Iceland, founded in Shropshire in 1970, or been to one of the big out-of-town supermarkets that first appeared during the Heath years. You almost certainly own a colour television. You've probably taken a few cheap flights abroad. Sorry. You've surely visited a shopping centre, like the pioneering temple to consumerism at Brent Cross, which first opened in 1976. You've surely been to a sandwich bar, like the one in Fenchurch Street, which drew plenty of raised eyebrows when it opened three years later. I dare say that some of you have taken the pill, often hailed as a product of the 60s, but only available to unmarried women in the early 70s. No doubt all of you have been to a branch of McDonald's, which first reared its ugly head in London in 1974, and perhaps tonight some of you will eat a ready meal from Marks and Spencer's. I'd be surprised if this talk inspired any of you to dine this evening on prawn cocktail, steak and chips, and Black Forest Gatto, that quintessential early 70s culinary lineup. But I guess there's a good chance that one or two of you might cook from a recipe book by a young woman who first appeared on television in September 1973. Maybe you might even treat yourselves to her early recipe, Baked Fish Fingers, which recommended pouring tinned tomatoes, tinned mushrooms, and grated cheese over some fish fingers <laughs> before proudly presenting to the inevitable Joneses from next door. Somehow I rather doubt Delia Smith still serves that one. The irony then is that if you did wake up to find yourself in 1973, you might recognize more than you think. 
the polyester clothes, the shaggy hairstyles, the beige wallpaper and the terrible restaurants might take a bit of getting used to. But perhaps it would take little effort to accustom yourself to a world in which the economy was in free fall, the two main parties were competing to do deals with the Liberals, and England's footballers were an international laughingstock. And there'd be plenty of compensations. You could tune in every week to watch Colditz or Dad's Army. You could go to see David Bowie's retirement gig at the Hammersmith Odeon. You could roll back the years with Bagpuss, Finder's Crispy Pancakes, and a few hours of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Every now and again, you might have to pinch yourself that you really were in a world where most people laughed at racist jokes, where you had to wait weeks for a telephone connection, and where the lights might go off at any moment. But you'd merely have to turn on the television and hear the words, nice to see you, to see you nice, and you'd remember, some things never change. Thank you. Well, Dominic, thank you very much for a wonderful and richly textured uh, and vivid um, talk. Um, you've kindly um, agreed to follow our usual format of taking some questions from the audience, uh, so please do um, come forward with questions. Um, if you could uh, just um, indicate that you'd like to speak um, and somebody will pass a portable mic to you, please say who you are or where you hail from, or what your affiliation is, uh, please keep it short and sweet. Um, I think we'll take questions just one by one, rather sure. than the, this, the fashionable thing of grouping them in threes, which I think would be inappropriate here. Okay, very good. So who'd like to uh, kick off with a question to Dominic, please? Gentleman there at the front. Thank you. My, my name is John Hume. I wasn't old enough to vote in 1970, but I was in February 74. Now, I could criticise you for not reminding us of the awfulness of little Jimmy Osmond, but my <laughs> question is quite simply, was Ted Heath just unlucky or his own worst enemy? Okay, thank you, John. That's a great question. Um, Ted Heath, I think, was the single unluckiest Prime Minister that we've had since the Second World War. Um, when he took power in June 1970, it would have been almost impossible to predict the kind of perfect storm of political and economic financial events that engulfed him in the winter of 73-74. I think he was um, dealing with an almost impossible situation that Britain was uh, competitively in decline, that it was extremely badly placed to weather the storm of the energy crisis and of the sort of international economic downturn of the early 70s. I think... Uh, there are very few periods in British political history, few such short periods where so many troubles, if you like, have um, unfolded at once. If you think of the, the sheer pressure of events that Heath had to put up with, Northern Ireland, of course, in its absolute kind of nadir, um, the rise of inflation, the huge problems with labour relations and with industrial relations and strikes and whatnot, I think any prime minister would have been um, almost blown away by them. I think Heath was the author of his own misfortunes in some ways. I think, in many ways, I think he was... Um, the difference between Heath and Wilson, certainly the Wilson coming after Heath, was that Heath was determined to kind of roll up his sleeves and to attempt to modernise Britain. Wilson had had that ambition in 1964, but he'd effectively given up on it by the early 1970s. I think he effectively concluded it was too difficult. Um, Heath, he tried to do far too much at once. 
too much too quickly. He was insensitive, I think, to the kind of political pressures that acted on other people. So he found it very hard uh, dealing with the unions because although he got on very well with the union bosses, he never understood the kind of visceral loathing that many ordinary union members had for him and for his government. He almost didn't lack the political sensitivity to, to appreciate their, their position and, and the pressures on them. Uh, but of course, the, the, the great thing about Heath, the sort of um, the single most striking thing was his utter awfulness as a communicator. Um, it's staggering now to think that this was a man who, in the television age, uh, became prime minister. I mean, this is a man who, uh, you know, the, his Tory central office during the election campaign in 1970 organised for him to be greeted off his campaign plane by a sort of cloth cap wearing worker with a very foaming pint of beer which Heath would get off the plane come and down this beer and he'd look like a sort of normal human being and what actually happened was Heath got off the plane, the man here you are, appeared with the beer and he said no thank you, I've had a cup of tea already <laughs> and um, you know he was this was somebody who was so inept, if you like, I mean inept at the sort of communication skills that he needed to to um, to get through the crisis. A different Conservative leader could easily have won the February 1974 election, I think, but Heath was not that man. He was such a poor communicator. But, he, but I mean, uh, yes, he was in the position that he was because of bad luck and because of events, but he then, every, sort of everything he touched turned to, um, well, it didn't turn to gold, let's put it that way. Very good. Who else would like to ask a question? Uh, gentleman there. Um, uh, my name's Aaron. Um, uh, you touched on it briefly, but I was just wondering how big an impact would you say the pill was and how big an impact would you say it had um, in comparison to other uh, technology advances of the 60s and the early 70s? How big an impact what had um, How big an impact the pill had the in pill, comparison right. to other um, technology advances um, of the same period? Well, I think there's an awful lot of... Um uh, false mystiques surrounding the pill not in that it didn't have an effect but that people get the timing wrong so people th think that the pill um, is a sort of emblematic product of the 1960s and that it transformed people's lives during the 1960s and was responsible for a kind of sexual revolution in the 60s I don't think that's right at all um, the, the data, the surveys that were done at the end of the 1960s seem to suggest that most people actually led pretty chaste, conservative sex lives, not unlike their parents. The reason for that, of course, was partly that the pill wasn't available to most people. It was only made available, by and large, to single young women um, in the early 1970s. And I think what you see happening in the 70s, not the 60s, is you see a sexual revolution, if you want to call it that, unfolding. Uh, you see people having sex much earlier, um, with having different partners and whatnot, beginning to get married later. In 1970 was the sort of, um, that's the, the peak, if you like, of people marrying young. I think people, it was something like 22, 23 was the average age of marriage, which of course it, it isn't at all now. Um, so I think the pill played a, a huge uh, part in that. Um, and I think that clearly, you know, you can see that as having a, a revolutionary impact in the way that people live. The one thing I would say is that it's often said, particularly by critics, you know, sort of very um, socially conservative critics, 
that the pill and whatnot made sex terribly important and it meant that people were obsessed by sex in a way they weren't before. I think that's actually completely wrong. I think what actually happened was that the pill made sex much less important. In the 1960s and 1950s, and this was a, a common theme of books at the time, novels, there would be this sort of common uh, story whereby boy meets girl, uh, the girl gets pregnant, um, it's a total sort of nightmare and a disaster. They have to get married because there's no other option. They don't love each other, but they're stuck together for life. Now, that completely dies out in the 1970s and 1980s because, of course, birth control is now so readily available. So, in fact, people, sex doesn't matter in the way that it once did. Having sex with somebody doesn't mean choosing them as a life partner, as it had done in the 1950s. So it, it definitely, I think, changed the way that... Um, it changed the dynamic between men and women, to, to put it bluntly. And it uh, there had been birth control before, but it was different because, of course, it put the control of their fertility in women's own hands, which no other form of birth control really had effectively done, although I know there was the coil and whatnot. But this was something that you know, allowed all sorts of women from all backgrounds to control their own future in a way that had never been possible before. Well, different partners and whatnot. Perhaps you'll tell us what the what the, the, the before the end. That's actually my uncharacteristic coyness there in your the, part. I can't that, think what that, you mean. That's yeah. actually my verbal tick. Right. Uh, my wife told me recently that I say whatnot a lot. And whatnot, during, right? During <laughs> so no doubt now you'll all laugh when I say it again, as I almost certainly will. <laughs> okay. Any more questions? What about from this side? This side of the room? Who else would like to ask a question? Gentleman there. Yeah. <clears throat> Hello, yes. uh, my name's Connell and uh, I do vaguely remember those years and I thought um, that uh, having to read by a candlelight was a great whiz as a <laughs> child. I don't think my parents shared that opinion. Um, obviously these years uh, saw some mon monumental uh, events around the world. Mm -hmm. My question is, do you feel that we've evolved in our awareness and understanding as a society of the rest of the world? That Britain has evolved in its knowledge of the world? or Yeah, basically the general public's attitude and understanding of, of world events. Um, yes, I think it's evolved enormously. Um, and there were still an enormous amount of people in Britain in 1970, let's say, who had barely left their hometown, let alone even their home county. Particularly older people, many older people, elderly people in the, in the early 1970s, could, some conceivably had barely left the, their neighbourhood. Um, so... We're hugely more travelled uh, since then, we're hugely more aware of other cultures, other nations, much less suspicious. There's an enormous amount of um, uh, what we would regard as racist prejudice around in the early 1970s. Of course, people would not necessarily have viewed it that way then, and I'm always a little bit um, reluctant to sort of bash the past by the standards of the present, but certainly... I think most people here would be shocked by the attitudes that were very common at the time. And I think, you know, there's much more... Um, uh, people are far more aware, I think, now of events overseas. I think they're far more... There's a far greater sense of being integrated in a world economy and a kind of globalised society. Um, most people, probably almost everybody in this room, uh, has visited you know, dozens conceivably of, of countries in a way that just would not have been imaginable um, in the early 1970s. And of course, it was changing then 
but we we're now living with the consequence of that change you know for good and ill with environmental cost and whatnot but I think in that sense it's a completely different world you merely have to go out onto the streets of London the people the, the faces the voices the accents the diversity of restaurants and whatnot the amount of you walk into a branch of Waterstones even though we, we often flagellate ourselves in Britain that we don't read enough foreign literature you look at the diversity of authors and whatnot there you go and whatnot um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's. I think it's a. We've we've evolved enormously in that sense. Well, on that point, Dominic, if, if I may, um, actually, what's quite. You, you mentioned, of course, that we entered the EU, and that was uh, what the European Economic Communities at the time, mm. and that was one of the most obviously existential choices we made as a country, and it does suggest. Um, actually quite an early degree of, of realism and pragmatism and coming to terms with Britain's loss of influence in the world, the loss of empire, um, the insufficiency of the Commonwealth as an alternative trading yep. system. Um, and it was carried comfortably in the House on the strength of conservative hopes at the time and, and a sizable minority of Labour MPs. And then in 1975 it was confirmed by a two to one majority. It was a huge majority yep. for a country which is still so many conservative in its reflexes in so many ways. And uh, I mean, so the old thing about you know Britain being actually the end of the day for all our widespread Euroscepticism, which is also fairly sh it's widespread but shallow, but mm. sort of British pragmatism perhaps triumphing in the end. But that struck me as something of, of seismic importance. But if I mean, just one other thing I'd, I'd like to pick you up on, just on, on economic strategy and sort of the Tory party, because in your book you talk about referred to sort of the, the, the sort of the withering away of the old the old Tory party, which was always rather uneasy about trade. Of course it had represented the landed interest since the nineteenth century and was a very least sort of, sort of ambivalent about trade and the, the new generation of, of garagistes, as Julian Critchley was later put it, come, coming forward. Mm. And if anything, and Ted Heath seemed to be absolutely emblematic of the new type of Toryism, grammar school background, um, uh, people, of course, there was sort of Selsden man of the late 1960s, um, Enoch Powell's early excursions into monetarism, and then Selsden man with an economically liberal kind of project. And then, mm. as you said, that once we actually find ourselves in a conservative government looking at pay boards, price commissions, price of income, incomes policy, yeah. corporatism par excellence. I mean, a million miles from the economic liberalism that we associate with the Conservative Party of Thatcher and, yeah. now, and, and now, and the Tory party was really as statist as it, as it, as it got. It was, uh, you know. Yeah, I think um, in some ways, Ted Heath is an absolutely fascinating character because he's so, um, he, he so accurately um, presages Mrs. Thatcher as somebody from a humble background, uh, meritocrat and whatnot, self-made, gets to the top of politics. Uh, there, are, there, is, there are some interesting differences between Heath and Thatcher, um, sort of socially and personally. Heath was slightly older, and he came from further down the social scale, which made him much more anxious about his origins and much less keen to play on them for political reasons. So Heath was, I mean, he's probably, um, he vies, let's say, with Gordon Brown for the title of our most insecure um, post-war Prime Minister. There's a great story about Heath and Harold Macmillan when um, Heath had just become Conservative leader and he and Macmillan went to a dinner together and uh, of, of sort of Tory party activists um, of the sort of old school when Heath was wearing a white dinner jacket and the f as soon as they got into the room somebody, an old friend of Macmillan saw him and said, Harold, I'm delighted to see you but why on earth did you bring that bloody waiter with you? And Heath, that was a kind of remark that stuck in Heath's mind mm. that was a you know, sort of festered. And I think what that meant was that he was much less keen than Thatcher was to sort of brandish his origins 
and his kind of lower middle class background. And he was far more reluctant to sort of um, personify the new Toryism, the Toryism of the, as it was once called, the estate agents rather than the estate owners. And I think on top of that, Heath was governing at a slightly different point in time when kind of Keynesian social democratic assumptions were much more embedded in the body politic. So although there were, there were signs of change, and although Heath kind of gestured towards free market economics and whatnot, um, he also backed away as soon as they got tough, because of, and not just because he was, as the Thatcherites often present him, they say he's a coward, he betrayed his ideals, all the rest of it. In fact, almost all sort of establishment opinion urged him to set up the price commissions and the pay boards. Mm. The Economist, the Spectator, the Times, all these editorials urged him to go for an incomes policy and to intervene in industry and to do all of these things. And I think it took Heath's failure. It was only Heath's failure and then Labour's failure in the late 70s. That was what prepared the ground for Thatcher. It would have been impossible for to implement a kind of free market policy of, that, of the 1980s kind had it not been for Heath's experiment with the price boards and the pay commissions. I think that was the kind of necessary condition for Thatcherism to, to gain ground, if you like. Thank you. Okay. But, um, yes, lady there. Um, hello, um, my name Hi. is Manuela. Um, thank you for your talk, it's really um, productive for me. Um, my question is, given that there was stagflation in the economy um, during yeah. the 70s, um, do you think the miners were justified in um, striking and also the 21% um, pay rise that they did get, yeah. well, do you think that was too much, too little? Um, I don't think it was too little. I think, it's, <laughs> I, I think I've never seen an argument that, that uh, suggests that it was too little. Um, the question of the, the stagflation and the unions is a really interesting one. Um, a common misconception, I think, about the unions and strikes in the 1970s, and a, a misconception particularly on the right, is that they were motivated by kind of outright, by either kind of deranged extremism, which just isn't right at all, because some of these union leaders were actually quite politically moderate, or it was motivated by kind of grasping greed, which I don't think is right either. What happened, of course, was that when, with prices going up, once you got into the spiral of prices going up, partly driven by the, um, a worldwide increase in commodity prices, which had started in the early 1970s, workers became um, anxious about being left behind. This was a society in which actually it turned out you know, there wasn't actually that much working class solidarity. People looked at their neighbor or the, the guy who was in the other union and they thought, I don't, want him, I don't want to fall behind him. It's very, particularly people who were slightly the sort of skilled workers, engineering workers and whatnot, who were the kind of aristocracy of the labor movement, who had a big advantage. They used to go on a great deal about their relativities. They had a big advantage over other workers and they, never want, they didn't want to lose that. So when one group of workers got an increase, other people wanted it too because they didn't want to be left behind. In an, in an affluent, fluid society where you know, people are perhaps a bit insecure about their social status, you know, they want to have the new car in the drive, they want to be able to go on holiday to Mallorca, it became very important to keep up with the Joneses, if you like. So I think that was a, um, a huge element in explaining a lot of the union militancy. And of course it then became self-reinforcing, it kind of got stuck into the, in the system. The miners specifically had gone on strike, um, as you no doubt know, in 1972, had beaten the government, it was a landmark, you know, hugely 
um, important strike in, in modern British history, the one that made Arthur Scargill a household name, um, the one that demonstrated arguably better than any other the, the sheer kind of muscle of the unions in the 70s. They won that strike. Um, they'd got their pay rise, and they went back for another one at the end of 1973. Now, I think uh, to go back for another one so soon after the last one um, raised eyebrows, in, shall we say, among the general public. Uh, who I think the general consensus was, you know, most people had actually backed the miners in 72. They, they knew that their wages had fallen behind and they approved of their, you know, the polls showed that people thought the government should give them what they wanted. But that's not quite the case in 1973-74. What then happened was, as you um, may also know, Heath obviously lost the February 1974 election despite all the polls showing that he would win. So he lost that election, and in came Harold Wilson at the head of a minority government. And Wilson's great, I mean, Wilson had once been the apostle of white heat, the technological revolution, modernization, and whatnot. He'd now completely given up on all that. He was Labour's Stanley Baldwin. He was kind of, you know, Mr. Um, you know, Mr. Experience. I've been there and done it. You know, I, don't, I won't frighten the horses. And Wilson's great claim was, I will be able to put the unions back back to work, I'll put the miners back to work, and his way of doing that was basically to give them what they wanted. Um, what that inevitably led to was that by within uh, a year of Wilson coming back, inflation was running at 26%, which then meant that they had to hold down people's wages effectively for the rest of the decade, and they had to start cutting spending. So you had you know, sort of how the history repeats itself, you had just spending cut after spending cut all the way through the 1970s, never quite enough to get the confidence of the markets, which is why we had to go to the IMF in 1976. Would it have been better not to give the miners what they wanted? Yes, it definitely would have been better because 26% inflation, whatever you're, you know, if, even if, if you're the most diehard labor supporter in the world, 26% inflation is not the road to kind of socialism. Um, so I think uh, Heath, he either he should have won that election and got a mandate to deal with the miners and to give them a smaller increase than they wanted, or Wilson should have had the, the backbone to say, no, you know, we have to stick to the line, we can't go above inflation, we can't go above our, 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 um, our pay level and whatnot. You know, inflation was, was always coming um, to some extent because it was driven by events overseas, but the government's decisions unquestionably made it worse in 74, 75. In 75, Dennis Healy kind of got a grip of the economy, and I think he deserves an enormous amount of credit for dragging it back towards sanity by the end of the 1970s. But yes, sorry, that's an incredibly long-winded way of answering your question, saying they probably shouldn't have got there, 21%. Just, uh, on your point, uh, Dominic, about, um, about the unions not being uh, driven principally by doctrinaire or extreme left uh, uh, sort of motives. I, I agree with that to a point, but um, it, it was in the course of the 70s that um, changes started happening on the Labour Party and also and on the far left of British politics. It, um, uh, the, the far left started organising itself both within the Labour Party and yep. in militant and new groups like socialist workers and uh, Trotskyist groups, not affiliated, not, not part of the old Communist Party, um, and Red Robbo. Um, people started inserting themselves into, na into the national consciousness yeah. who were not mainstream old-fashioned Labour, even left-wing Labour figures like the way Nye 
Bevan had been. Yeah. They were clearly very left-wing, um, to the mind of a large portion of the middle class and the press, very scary. Um, you had Labour MPs of more old-fashioned, moderate ones being starting to be deselected, de mm -hmm. the so beginning of the so-called bedsit brigade that went into the 1980s. Um, and uh, it did not, it, it, it looked like something new, um, coupled with the sort of the, in the popular imagination, the sort of the Howard Kirk, sort of the bearded polytechnic mm -hmm. lecturer, the other type of scary socialists. Yeah. There were a, a whole new sort of set of left-wing bogey figures had yeah. started to appear in the popular press, and the Tory party was able to organize and mobilize against that very very effectively. Um, and I think that was uh, that change on the left, and of course, which did the left no favours in this country, effectively yeah. helped ensure that left, or even the centre-left, was out of power for 20 years. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with all that, actually. It's an astonishing thing that in February 1974, Labour went to the polls with a manifesto that almost none of its senior figures believed in. Um, it was, you know, Tony Benn uh, held sway. Harold Wilson despised Tony Benn's ideas and was determined not to put any of them into practice or to uh, avoid it as much as possible. But I think it's a great, um, on the debit side with Wilson, and, and then actually with Callaghan, both of them loathed the far left and were horrified by the infiltration of militants and Trotskyists and whatnot into the Labour Party. Both of them were told by their aides and by people within the, at the top of the, the Labour Party that they should do something about it, and both of them backed away from doing it. And in many ways, the seeds of Labour's problems in the 1980s were sown then at that point. Of course, there was a bigger social um, change going on. There are, there are lots of fantastic stories about Labour constituency parties, particularly here in London, uh, where you had a kind of a huge generation gap between old and young. You had kind of working class older members who were often socially quite conservative and were interested in kind of um, quite small, pragmatic things, you know, conditions, wages those kinds of things. And then you had the infiltration, as London, parts of London gentrified, you had the infiltration of, as you put it, the Howard Kirks, the kind of um, uh, younger, uh, more idealistic, more impatient, middle class members. There's some great, there's a great uh, story, Bernard Donoghue, who was Howard Wilson's policy chief and then Jim Callaghan's policy chief, stopped going to his own uh, Islington Labour constituency party because every time he went they just kind of slagged him off the whole time and said the government is so right wing, Wilson's a fascist you know all this kind of business and there's a great line in his diary where he says um, <laughs> they're not really Labour people just a load of effing polytechnic lecturers um, which kind of tells you probably a lot about uh, Barnard Donoghue but also does say something about what was happening to the Labour party at the time sure. Lady there, yes and then the gentleman there. Yeah. Uh, my name's Valerie Smith. Um, I sort of start, had my first, uh, voted in my first election in that period. Yeah. One of the things I've often wondered is whether the issue of the engagement of young people in politics has really changed from that time. Mm -hmm. Because I felt this great sense of responsibility that I had to understand what an earth politics was about, partly because it was all there around us in the strikes and whatever. I don't know, partly because we're, we're told by polls and things that young people are very disengaged now, um, I don't know whether that has really changed. Yeah. It feels differently. And the second change I wonder whether is true or not is the great dominance of London and the southeast in in the economics of the country mm -hmm. now. 
um, that didn't feel like that uh, when we were growing up, but it might have been the case. Um, I'll answer the, so the first question about young people and politics, I think there's been a definite change, actually. Um, there may not be palpable somewhere like the LSE, but I think it is palpable elsewhere. I think society generally is more, much less politicised than it was. I mean, if you turned on the television in the mid-1970s, perfectly likely that you could be watching a, um, you know, a, a, a play, a, a play for today about, you know, union members in Huddersfield in the 1920s or something that was written, you know, very much with its political heart on its sleeve. People were unafraid of voicing political sentiments and allowing them to kind of filter into their conversation and their daily lives and so on. Um, as you said in the, your introduction in the index, um, Doctor Who comes out in favour of the, you know, even very popular culture, you know, like a Doctor Who or James Bond or whatever it might be, uh, often qu was quite strongly politicised in a way that it simply wouldn't be today. I think young, it was much more, it's even just a question of fashion, actually. I think it was much more fashionable for younger people, particularly kind of bright young people, to be um, very engaged in politics. There was a kind of, um, very popular kind of Marxist discourse that people picked up at university um, and that filtered its way into their kind of everyday conversation. I think that has almost all gone now, actually, um, except for obviously small pockets. I was a university lecturer during the uh, during September the 11th and the invasion of Iraq. And, you know, people in my classes, this is in Sheffield, uh, people in my classes, they were, they were interested. You know, they had opinions. But they, the idea of skipping a day of you know, university to go on a march or something, I think would have struck them as inconceivable, unimaginable. I never saw the slightest sort of um, sign of, you know, they didn't wear a badge or anything like You know, there was nothing. Uh, so that's a change. Dominance of London. Economically, I think clearly there is a big diversity between the southeast and the rest now. But that, that's long been there, particularly in the 20th century. The other thing I think... Culturally, I think in some ways London is less significant than it was because, of course, in the 70s, there were fewer alternative um, sources of kind of cultural power, if you like. You know, Manchester uh, had not had yet to revive in the way that it has. Um, the cities of, of Scotland were relatively more depressed than they are now. I don't think there was anything like the kind of, uh, you know, you think of in, in, in Birmingham, there are now you know, galleries and whatnot and things that there weren't then. Um, so I think, you know, we think of London because everything gravitates towards London, so we, th we think of it as sort of sucking in more and more. But I think in some ways there were, there were fewer alternatives back then than there are now. And you think of, say, the BBC. Even now, it's spreading itself out and sort of sending people off to work in Salford and whatnot. That would have been, I think, uh, people would have refused to, you know, it, there would have been even more uproar in the 70s if that had happened because Manchester was seen as so much further behind London than it is today. Thank you. Um, yes, the gentleman there, I promised. It's um, interesting to reflect that at that time, a Labour government was willing to resist getting involved in a major American foreign yep. adventure compared to our most recent Labour government. And I'm wondering how you would compare the relationship that we had then with America with the relationship that we have now with America, and if it's the case possibly that now we feel less secure 
about having an independent foreign policy and feel that we need mo now more to be tied into America in, uh, in our foreign policy. Yeah, well, you've said it. I think that's exactly right. Um, I think uh, it's an astonishing uh, parallel, really, between Harold Wilson and Tony Blair. I mean, there's clearly lots of parallels between them that are not foreign policy. They're both modernizers. They were both seen as very slick. They were both seen as untrustworthy. There are all these sort of boxes that you can tick for both of them. But the big difference, as you rightly say, is on foreign policy. And the, the irony is that there was every reason for Harold Wilson to send troops to Vietnam. We know from, you know, we have transcripts of his conversations with President Johnson in the late 60s. Uh, Wilson was, in a way that Blair never was, Wilson was dependent on the Americans for support for the pound. We had, you know, he had this, we had this constant problem with defending the value of sterling in the late 1960s, and Wilson needed American support for that. If the Americans lost confidence in the British pound, then it would be curtains for Labour's economic policy. And yet, despite that, Wilson always... People often said he was a sort of he was duplicitous or he was a bit of a weasel, but this was a great asset uh, in this case because he always somehow managed to weasel out of giving Johnson the troops he wanted. Johnson would ring him up and he would say, "Harold, purely for domestic purposes, for the point of view of the American electorate, I just need you to send you know send a military band or something, just something small, so I can say the British are there too." And Wilson always said, "Yeah, well, we'll think about it, Lyndon. The, the parliamentary position is very difficult, or you know this kind of thing." And he always managed to worm his way out of doing it. Which I think, in a, it's a negative achievement, but I think in many ways it's Wilson's, one of Wilson's greatest achievements, is that when it would have been very easy to do so and to claim, you know, our, the Americans are our creditors, we have to do this, he didn't. He didn't because he, I think he always thought it was a mistake. It was the British had an experience, of course, in, in Malaya. They'd, we'd been fighting more than enough kind of small colonial wars in the 1950s and early 60s, and Wilson was desperate to cut defence costs. I think all of those were, and, and Wilson was a, you know, Wilson was not um, a, a difference maybe with Tony Blair. Wilson was, Wilson hated confrontation. He hated any, the idea of conflict, actually. He was a very kind of kindly, humane, possibly weak man. And I think he disliked the idea of sending people to, to war. I think it's as simple as that in some ways. Ted Heath then came in. Uh, Ted, there have been great, these great predictions for, that Heath and Nixon would be the sort of Churchill and Roosevelt of their day. Nixon certainly thought it. He was dreadfully excited. He kept ringing Heath on the day that Heath... And Heath didn't answer his calls. Heath went into bed. And um, they had so much in common. They both liked music. They, neither of them... They didn't really like women. Uh, they liked big incomes policies. But... And Nixon tried very hard to be friends with Ted Heath. But, of course, Heath is unusual among post-war prime ministers in being almost wholly uninterested in America. He hadn't really mm. travelled there very much. He was much more interested in Europe. Europe was his kind of shining light. And, uh, you know, Nixon and Kissinger were baffled by Heath's indifference to them. Um, was that a healthier attitude? Well, I think possibly in some ways it was, actually. I think um, it was certainly... I think it's certainly healthier than the attitude we've had in the last 10 years or so. I think Mrs Thatcher's relationship with Ronald Reagan was probably more nuanced in some ways than... Uh, Blair's relationship with Bush. There are all these stories of... There's a great story of after the invasion of Grenada of Mrs. Thatcher ringing Reagan in the Oval Office when all his aides were around, and she was... The, the air kind of turned blue, and Reagan was actually holding the phone away from his head, and the, all his aides could hear this angry voice coming out. Now, it's almost... Can you imagine Tony Blair doing that to George Bush? I, I can't, I have to say. Um, so, yeah, I think... Um, uh, I think it, w it was a, a, a more sceptical 
more detached and healthier attitude. Um, just on, on that, I, the, on, on, that, on um, the, the Grenada episode, my understanding of it, Dominic, was, it was that, that the reason Margaret Thatcher, who had no problem at all with having some dictator being knocked off his perch by the Americans, was simply that it put the Queen in a very, yep. very awkward position as head of the Commonwealth, yep. and uh, we'd had no prior notification of it. Uh, what would the Queen have said and done? And I think it was protectiveness of the, of the Queen, mm. because geopolitically there's no reason why she'd be remotely bothered. Um, but it's a fascinating question, because actually the post-war period, where we think the West hanging together and such a close relationship between um, uh, Europeans and Americans, um, it's true in the case of Britain and the States, in the case of in the intelligence sharing and, of course, and, and nuclear and our reliance on nuclear technology. But in terms of our worldview and our geopolitics, we'd had a huge bust-up, still not that long before over Suez. And in fact, the last 25 years, and I would say, it's, you can say it's to do with Thatcher Reagan and then Blair Bush, we've had much closer approximation mm. of geopolitical worldviews between the states and, uh, and, and, and Britain, to the extent that I think it's now extremely difficult to imagine a British prime minister now turning down a request from an American president uh, for help. Uh, even in some rather far-flung part of the world. I think it's much, much harder now than it would have been. I mean, clearly yeah. it wasn't hard, that hard for Harold Wilson. And if anything, we've actually got closer to the, to the United States. I, I personally don't have any problem with that at all. I'm sure plenty of people in this room will disagree with me. But um, it, it is uh, perhaps not uh, widely noticed. I mean, it seems to me it's a rather interesting point. Um, there was a gentleman who'd had his hand up before, and then I'll go to who's now. I can't see. Yes, it was your. Yes, I'll t I'll t we've got time for two more. So you, um, and then, and then so, you, and then I think we'll call, um, draw things to a close. Um, hi, I'm Tom, and I have no conception of the 1970s at all. Um, <laughs> how it possibly could have been. Um, I want to ask, um, what really precipitated the Race Relation Act in uh, 1976 and the kind of change from semi-institutional racism towards kind of multiculturalism as it is today? Um, what precipitated the Race Relations Act? Well, they were part of Labour's... Um, I think, I think there was a, my feeling is that there was a um, political consensus generally on race until the very end of the 1970s. You may remember Mrs. Thatcher made the famous swamped uh, remark, as you said, before a by-election, which shocked people at the time because it seemed that a, a party leader was getting involved in the race question. I think the Race Relations Act of 76 were a, partly a reaction to the fact that um, people felt that the Race Relations Act of the late 60s hadn't worked as they hadn't been as maybe as um, effective as had been hoped. I think they reflected a sense. I don't think it was a question of multiculturalism at all. I don't think the, the term would have actually made sense to people in the <coughs> 1970s. I think there was a much stronger consensus that immigrants would adapt, that they would become British, that they would you know, uh, eventually shed their prior associations. There was no sense of, you know, there was no great interest or, or um, no attention really given to the, the, the idea that recent immigrants might have their own culture that they would want to kind of cultivate and to nurture at a, at a grassroots level. Um, but I think, you know, the, the thing that strikes me, I and mean, I know that's not, it's, some people might not agree with this, is that actually, uh, on politically, um, the kind of, uh, the extent of a, a fairly liberal consensus on racial questions. In some ways, Enoch Powell kind of poisoned his own cause 
because he made it impossible for other senior politicians to talk about immigration or race, which, and, and so they barely talked about it at all in the 1970s. Of course, you're, the, in the year of the Race Relations Act, you had the Notting Hill Carnival riots and, and fighting between police and carnival goers in 1976. But politicians, by and large, refused to get involved in it. Even, the, you know, it, despite a lot of attention is given to Mrs. Thatcher's remark that people felt swamped. But that's virtually the only remark that you can find of that kind that she ever made. And on top of that, sort of behind the scenes, the Conservative Party w was working very hard to win over kind of Asian entrepreneurs mm. and whatnot and the kind of Ugandan Asian middle classes who'd come to Britain uh, in 1972. So there is a kind of unacknowledged consensus, I think, there, which actually does the politicians of the 60s and 70s a lot of credit. I think it's striking how few of them followed Enoch Powell's line and how, you know, the. There's the Race Relations Act in 76, for example, some conservatives were against it because they saw it as excessively interventionist, but not many, and it wasn't a huge cause celebre, and it didn't dominate the newspapers in a way that maybe a similar piece of legislation might do you know, today. And there wasn't a great sort of um, upsurge of self-flagellation about assimilation versus diversity. Um, I think that all came in the 1980s, and I think that was a response to the Brixton riots of 1981, really, rather than something from the 1970s itself. So you have kind of, I know in the talk, I talked a lot about, um, you know, the popularity of the black and white minstrels or Alf Garnet or whatever, but I think there was a big difference, actually, a bigger difference, arguably, than any time in modern history on this question between elite attitudes and the attitudes of the general public, I think, by and large, the elite were strikingly liberal in their racial attitudes, given the, the sort of um, the pressures of the day and the pressure from below. You know, you look at uh, the, um, the guy I mentioned, the talk, Jeremy Seabrook, wrote a brilliant book on, on Blackburn in 1971, where he went and just listened to people and spoke to people. And it's extraordinary the extent of the kind of the deep racial resentment among white residents of Blackburn. Uh, who felt completely unrepresented by their politicians. They felt that nobody was listening to them at all. And that is, of course, a testament to the strength of that consensus among politicians. Thank you. Uh, so the last question. Yes, gentleman there. Hi. Um, it's regarding the 84 uh, minus, uh, minus strike. Um, okay. Can we make any link? Um, is what happened and what Mrs. Thatcher did, was it as a response to 72 and 73, or yep. was it just because we are uh, pre-shaping the economy, because it was a new economy, so there's no room for the miners there? And uh, do you think the personalities or the character you've just mentioned, between the difference between Mrs. Uh, Thatcher and uh, Heath, does that have any effect on how they respond and how they've been prepared? Okay, that's a, that's a great question. Um, the minor strike of 84 was that there was a huge folk memory of 72 and 73 to 4 within the Conservative Party. There was a determination that that would not happen again. They would not be humiliated as they had been before. And I think uh, Mrs. Thatcher, of course, had been in the Cabinet during those strikes, so I think she was determined not to go down the same route again. In the early 80s, the, tourists, the, the government had ducked a, a confrontation with the miners because they weren't ready for it. They wanted to prepare the ground. So in, you know, they had built up the coal stocks, they had everything ready. They had, they had learned, if you like, from their defeat, their tactical defeats, in, particularly in 72. And I think there was, um, 
among conserv- a lot of conservative activists, uh, I think among, among a lot of them there was an appetite for, we have to win this one. We were beaten before, let's take them on, let's win. I think that was definitely there. And now I think with M- Mrs. Thatcher and Ted Heath, there is an interesting um, uh, misconception about their political personas. Ted Heath, of course, is the wishy-washy you know, loser who backed away from his original principles, whereas Thatcher is stubborn and inflexible and dogmatic and sticks to her guns. That's completely wrong, I think. I think it's actually more the other way around. Mm-hmm. Heath was, inc- was a, despite his U-turns and whatnot, Heath was, when he, when he decided on something, he was very stubborn and, and, and inflexible. That made him very difficult to work with, and is one reason why he got in this hideous mess in 73, 74. Thatcher herself said later, in a TV interview before becoming Prime Minister, but after, so in something like 77, she said, well, it's obvious what Ted should have done. He should have just given the miners what they wanted and settled, because then we'd have, you know, we'd have stayed in power and we could have reaped the rewards later. She was much more, I think, uh, cautious and, if you like, it's an extraordinary word to use about somebody who's seen as so inflexible. I think she was much more supple than she's often imagined to be. By contrast, Heath was much more stubborn. Now, I think that's what... She was a better politician, basically. She was better at politics, at the kind of little compromises and whatnot, like ducking a fight with the miners in the very early ages, but then preparing for it in 84. She was a much better tactical chess player than Ted Heath was. And it's odd that we think about them, I think, in completely the wrong way, when, in fact, throughout her career, actually... Mrs. Thatcher was much more uh, cautious and hesitant than we often remember. Whereas Heath was kind of all gung-ho for confrontation. Will you deal? Will you back down? Will you find a middle way? No, he didn't want to do any of that. He just believed in sticking to his guns. And I think that was his downfall to some extent. And that explains why she prospered. She was a great opportunist, whereas Heath despised opportunism. And that was one reason why she prospered and he didn't. Well, um... Dominic, you've given us a terrific hour and a half. We could go on for hours. It's been huge fun. Um, and um, uh, what can I say? You have that tremendous gift to make us all you know, feel as though we are there. Uh, and considering you weren't even there, uh, it's an even more remarkable, rem- <laughs> remarkable, <laughs> <all> uh, <laughs> remarkable achievement. Uh, but we've had a, a great time. I will forgive you your omission of, 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 Monty, of Monty Python. <laughs> so not least because it was uh, but, um, such an extensive commentary on, on social stereotypes and things at the time. It's a great book. As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, it is uh, available outside, should you wish to buy a copy. Uh, and Dominic, I know, would be very happy uh, to sign it. So thank you all very much. And uh, thank you, Dominic. Thank you. Thank you.